0: And I'm as confident today as I was on February 24th when I told world leaders, Ukraine will fight, Ukraine will stand. And I'm confident that freedom must always prevail when challenged. So Mr. Zelensky went to Washington and went home empty-handed. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a high-profile and high-stakes trip to D.C. this week to press his case for additional U.S. defense assistance. But his appeal ran headlong into the toxic partisan warfare engulfing American politics at the moment. Meanwhile, Russian media cheered as congressional Republicans continue to block $60 billion in supplemental defense assistance to Ukraine and in his annual year-end press conference, an emboldened Vladimir Putin predicted victory. So after Mr. Zelensky's trip to Washington, just how bleak does the coming winter look for Ukraine as it fights for survival? Well, stick around because I got just a guest to help us all break it down. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTM McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center joining me from palo alto california is stephen piper who served as the u.s ambassador to ukraine from 1998 to 2000 and is currently embedded at stanford university's center for international security and cooperation welcome back to the podcast steve it's been way too long happy to be here brian happy to have you so steve i'm not going to sugarcoat this uh the post-mortems after Zelensky's visit are pretty bleak Ukraine's running out of weapons and ammunition. The Russians appear emboldened. Their strategy of waiting out the West and the politics in Washington appear to be as dysfunctional as ever. Am I wrong here, Steve? Talk me down off the ledge. I mean, How do you see the politics of this aid package playing out? I'm hearing mixed signals here in DC.
1: Right. Well, before I do that, let me though just kind of give you my look at just where the war now stands. Mm-hmm. I think this narrative has now sort of ceased that somehow Ukraine is losing the war. Mm-hmm. And I would argue, yes, the Ukrainian counteroffensive that began this summer did not succeed in the way that we would hoped. Uh, and you could perhaps say Ukraine is not winning the war, but I don't think the facts on the grounds make it a situation where Ukraine is losing. Mm-hmm. If you look at a map today on December 15, 2023, you go back and you look at a map on December 15, 2022, you're going to see that the Russians don't occupy much, if any, more territory than they did a year ago. And I would even argue that with the exception of Bakhmut, which the Russians took in May of this year, um, and I would argue Bakhmut is probably the epitome of a Pyrrhic victory. Right. It took a city of relatively little strategic reports at the cost of thousands and thousands of Russian lives. But the Russian army, other than that, has not won a major offensive victory on the ground in 18 months. So yes, Ukraine may not be winning, but I don't. I think it's a jump to say that they're now losing. But bringing into the situation in Washington, I think the frustrating thing to me is that there is such a clear and obvious case for American interest in supporting Ukraine. It starts with the American interest going back seven decades of uh, the interest in a and defined as a vital national, just in a safe and stable and secure Europe. And I think we're seeing now that a stable and secure Europe requires a stable and secure Ukraine. And I guess what also worries me, and I think people in some elements on the Capitol Hill don't understand, is if Vladimir Putin wins in Ukraine, what does an emboldened Vladimir Putin do next? Mm -hmm. Look at Moldova. Does he look at, you know, he talks, when he talks about Ukraine, he talks about, recovering historic Russian lands. Most of modern day Ukraine was once part of the Russian Empire. Well, if you look at a map of 19th century Europe, you're going to see Finland, the Baltic right. States, Poland were once historic Russian lands. And I guess my Myron- in, in, in scare quotes, of course, but yeah. quotes, <laughs> yes, but they were at that point part of the Russian Empire. Uh, happily, they've now left and they would not be back in the Russian Empire. But if Mr. Putin's ambitions extend, say, to Eastern Estonia... In the case of Ukraine, we're sending money and we're sending weapons. If it's Eastern Southern, we're going to be sending American troops. Yep. And the argument is, is not understood in some quarters, the MAGA quarters on Capitol Hill, that you know it's a lot better to stop Putin in Ukraine than later on. But I look at the debate now, and it seems to me, I would sort of separate the Senate and the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. In the Senate, I think it's pretty clear that if you had an open vote in the Senate, probably 80 votes would support Ukraine. Ukraine. And there now does seem to be a fairly serious effort going on within the Senate in negotiations to work out a package on border security that we then allow that vote to go forward. I think they're staying through the weekend and even working to next week. Um, So I, I think the Senate, or most of the Senate, gets it. In the House of Representatives, when I look at it, again, I think if there was a free vote in the House of Representatives, support for Ukraine would pass easily. There was a survey done in September that looked at every member of the Republican caucus in the House. And about, uh, I think it was 120 out of two, or even you know, 130 out of uh, what, 220 Republicans in the House mm-hmm. scored either an A or a B on support for Ukraine. Right. But the problem is, uh, Speaker Mike Johnson, who controls <laughs> what actually gets voted on the floor of the House, uh, got an F in the grade. Right. Now, Johnson has said he you know, wants to support Ukraine, uh, and we'll have to see. But you, what bothers me is you don't see the sense of urgency in the House that you right. seem to see among both Democrats and Republicans in the Senate. And I think even Johnson talking about the House going home and kicking us down the road three weeks, again, uh, I, I, it, that's a problem. I'd, I'd like to see them get this legislation giving support to Craig passed before they
0: go home for Christmas vacation. Yeah, I mean, there's it, a problem in the House is getting the vote to the floor, and that's the Speaker's prerogative, right? right. And that's what, uh, that's. I mean, I've been kind of brushing up on my parliamentary procedure yeah. here on this because there's a lot of talk of the Senate jamming the House. The Senate passes something, it's kind of harder for the Speaker not to take it to the floor, is in my understanding, but it's not, I mean, he could. He, it's all up to the Speaker. This is his unilateral decision to take to the floor, right? Exactly, yeah,
1: but I, but I think you're right. You know, if the Senate passes a bill, and again, I think a Senate bill uh, on support for Ukraine would have strong bipartisan support, that goes to the House, it would be harder for Johnson to say no, but Johnson can still say no. He
0: could still say no, yeah.
1: And he's operating under the pressure of, you know, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. Um, He understands that his position, you know, is pretty precarious, you know, three or four votes turn against him, and there's another leadership challenge. Uh, although I have to actually wonder, I mean, this is one of the things that's puzzled me now for several months, is uh, I believe about 12 Republican members of Congress are members of the Ukraine caucus. Mm-hmm. So why don't they come together and sort of exercise the kind of power that you can see 10 or 15 mega Republicans exercising?
0: They, they, Maybe it's time for them to play a bit hardball on this Yeah, no, I'd, I'd like to see that happen as well And that thought has crossed my mind I'm talking to staffers, as I'm sure you are On both sides of the aisle People seem to think there is a path to yes here uh, yeah. I'm, talking, I'm talking to both Republicans and Democratic staffers People seem to think there is a path to yes I worry about the signal this is sending to everybody My nightmare scenario is uh, Donald Trump starts whipping votes against which you know I, I don't rule out um so there's a I mean this is this is precarious i mean we're all on tender hooks right now because uh, according to the white house basically they can get the Pentagon can get ukraine through into january yeah but not much beyond that and then and then where are we and this is I, this is I, I, there's there's still stuff in the
1: pipeline i think the pentagon still has a little bit of money that they can expend uh, but you saw one result of that was when the president announced, or the White House announced, a new aid package uh, on Tuesday when uh, Zelensky was there. It was only 200 million. You know, usually right. they're larger, so they're 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 being a little bit more cautious about how quickly they parcel money out. Now, the other thing that may also help a bit is that, and we saw President Zelensky two weeks ago said, "Look." Uh, at this point in the time, we're going to go over to the defensive. We're going to concentrate on fortifications so we can make sure that we can stabilize the line and prevent or make the Russians pay for any future offensive actions. Mm-hmm. And if the Ukrainians are on the defense, which probably makes some sense you, as know, with winter setting in, yeah, probably reduces their rate of consumption of things like artillery and things like that. So it may make their demands a little bit easier to meet. So there, there, we we may have some time still, but I'm with you. It would be much better to have this thing done, sealed, yeah. the air that the Pentagon can spend. And I share your concern. And you know, if if uh, Donald Trump uh, comes out against this um, in a big way, it, it's a general problem I've seen on so many issues with Republicans in Congress. Yeah, is that if Trump comes out on a position, no matter. How much that position, I would argue, may undercut American national interests and our security interests. And even if a large number of the Republicans in the House might say that they disagree with that personally, you know, they still go along with Trump. Yeah. Like thing wrapped up and put behind us.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I would like to see the cost effectiveness argument being made uh, more, more, uh, m- more frequently. I mean, we 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 hear these big numbers that we're saying we are sending a lot of aid to Ukraine. But it's 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 like one percent of the U.S. defense budget, and we've and the Ukrainians have uh, basically have destroyed half of the Russian ground forces for us. That's a bargain in my book.
1: Exactly. No, I mean remember, you know, uh, the Kremlin has declared the United States its glavny protivnik, you know, its main adversary. Right. And for a relatively small investment, you know, we're helping the Ukrainians do immense damage, uh, particularly the Russian ground power. I mean, they've lost, you know, three thousand yeah. plus troops. Um, 65% of modern main battle tanks have been destroyed in Ukraine, yeah. captured by the Ukrainians. It'll take the Russian military 5, 10, maybe 15 years to replace all of that. Yeah. Uh, and also, the, I think the other thing that's lost, uh, and for some who don't do a little bit of digging below the surface, they see $60 billion. We're going to give the Ukrainians $60 billion. No, most of that money actually goes to the American uh, defense industry. Right. What, what we historically done is we... Take creates American out, jobs. <laughs> out, we send it to the Ukraine, and then we buy stuff to replace it. And usually when we buy stuff to replace it, we're buying more modern stuff. So we right. send ATACOM's rockets to the Ukrainians to use. My guess is the Pentagon is not going to use the replacement money to buy ATACOM's rockets. They're going to use it to, provide, to buy the precision strike missile, right. which is more accurate and has a longer range. Right. So, right. You know, Funny that you know. In a way, it, it 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 generates jobs for the American economy. It's something that I think even were we not supporting Ukraine, we would have to do, because we have to expand our own um, defense industrial base. What we have learned in watching this war for twenty two months now between Russia and Ukraine is modern force on force warfare consumes a lot of stuff very quickly. And I think in the United States, but also in every European country, they've recognized that the sorts of plans they had for a possible war mm-hmm. were undersupplied. You know, I, yeah. my, you know, the, the the U.S. military has a certain requirement uh, for 155-millimeter artillery shells. My guess is that that requirement now is substantially higher than it was two years ago because they've seen how fast right. you burn through artillery shells. So we'd have to do
0: this in any case, and this money is just helping us do it faster. Yeah, and they are I mean, they're rationing artillery at the front, according to according to different reports. I mean, a lot of us have been kind of thinking through like uh, Michael Coffin and I had a con- conversation in this podcast a few weeks ago about a couple of things. One of the things you alluded to earlier about this narrative that Ukraine is losing and get a get a kind of realistic theory of victory and a realistic theory of success here. Um, I think I think we, we, we had uh, uh, too high expectations, but also uh, things we can do on the cheap that would actually help Ukraine. Like the uh, Michael pointed this out quite correctly. The Ukrainians are a nation of MacGyvers. They're a nation of tinkerers and innovators. Yep. And they're I mean, how they how did how they how they they, they managed to take out the Moscow was not with one of our weapons, but one of their jerry-rigged weapons. Yeah. If we could help them scale that up. If we could help them produce that stuff at scale, they can basically produce a, a lot. Um, but but, it, but, but and it would be a, a relatively modest investment. I'm kind of trying to think outside the box here about how to get this thing moving if the politics jam it up.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, and I think that's a great idea. I mean, uh, you know, taking some portion of that money and helping develop the Ukrainian defense industrial base. You know, particularly because there does still seem to be, I think, uh, a certain reluctance on the part of both Washington and and the Europeans. You know, there's a clear preference that Western provided weapons not be used by the Ukrainians to strike targets in Russia proper. Yeah, that's absurd. But yeah. Now, now I I agree. That's kind of absurd. Uh, But the Ukrainians, to be fair, the Ukrainians have said that they would not use those weapons to strike targets in Russia. So let's use some funding to help scale up your Ukrainian defense production so Ukraine can strike targets in Russia with Ukrainian-produced weapons. That seems to be the logical answer. And I it's time for the West to take a look and say, really, does it make sense to tell the Ukrainians, you know, don't use our weapons to hit targets in Russia? Maybe you loose that up and say, look, don't strike cities, don't strike civilian targets, but military installations that are providing logistics or
0: providing direct support to the war in Ukraine, why should they be off limits? Right. Yeah. No, we're fortunate to fight with one hand high, high behind their back, which is which is really, really, really frustrating. Oh. Steve, you mentioned the Europeans here, too, and I yeah. did want to bring that into the discussion because it it isn't just Washington that's uh, kind of behaving in a pretty dysfunctional way regarding this. But it's also Brussels, uh, thanks to Viktor Orban and thanks to Hungary. I mean, we, we, we know that uh, Hungary blocked a 50 billion euro uh, European defense package for uh, for for. For Ukraine, I mean, one of my hopes because one of the messages that's not getting out in the U.S. Um, is the degree of of European support. Right? Um, there's this uh, this sense that the U.S. is carrying the whole burden, when in fact the EU has actually given more to Ukraine than the United exactly. States. Exactly. I think if you look at you know money that's already been spent, Europe's already
1: ahead of us. Yeah. Um, and if you look at money that's been committed, I mean, Europe's also made some commitments. I think Europe's probably 56% more than the U.S. Now, there's a little bit of apples and oranges there because the Europeans tend to do more for direct economic support. Because remember, the the Ukrainian budget, because the economy has been so badly damaged, they need several billion dollars a month just to pay salaries and things like that. Europe tends to bear more of that burden. But even if you're looking at just military assistance, uh, Europe's about at the same level of the United States. Yeah. And then when you break it down, I saw a chart a couple of days ago, if you break it down on a percentage
0: base of gross domestic product, right, it's like 30 on the list. Yeah, no, it's it's the Estonians and the Latvians, Lithuanians, and the Poles are basically
1: leading the like one and one and a half percent of gross domestic product to help Ukraine. You know, we're down to a fraction of one percent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so Europe is doing, I mean, this is one of those things where you say Europe is doing their share. Europe is doing more than we're doing. Uh, But here's my concern is that I, I think if US assistance dries up, one, it's not clear who in Europe provides the leadership that the United States has provided. Right. But the bigger issue is even if the Europeans say we're going to go ahead and continue to support Ukraine, even if the United States drops out. And I think there are, you know, Europe and the Germans, for example, in their budget have just authorized $8 billion. Or eight billion euros for yeah. Ukraine 2024. I think European con- countries would be determined to continue to try to support Ukraine. The problem that they have is they probably don't have the capacity on their own. They can't. I mean, it, it'll be hard to provide Ukraine the number of artillery
0: shells that they that they need. The Europeans can't do it on their own. Yeah, and this is. I mean, this is partially a function of there's a global shortage in 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 artillery, and I'm beginning to hear kind of discussions here in Washington that maybe it's worth thinking about switching to an arsenal system where the U.S. government where the, pr- pr- produces things like artillery rather than relying on the private sector. That's, of course, a discussion for later. This is not going to solve the problem right now, but we're dealing with a with with, with the global uh, artillery shortage. But the other problem that worries me in Europe is Hungary. I mean, yeah. they basically vetoed this. Um in Hungary and Turkey are both blocking Sweden's accession to NATO which is a related but separate issue but I mean I I see the same dysfunction kind of working in a different way it's almost like Orban is the stand-in for the the Maga Republicans in 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 Europe but it's the the, the result is the same on both sides of the Atlantic uh Putin's cheering this on I'm sure you watched his speech this week his his end of year press uh, uh speech he, he he he's quoting because it seems that what he had been counting on, um, he seems to know us well. This, uh, at least on this issue, we're gonna we're gonna tire. This is gonna get get tangled up in our politics, and they're gonna be able to kind of use all their channels and malign influence to 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 cheer that on. And um, i we are in that spot right now, and it's 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 disturbing. Yeah, no. I,
1: although this has been an issue, I think always with the European Union, NATO. I mean, I worked in the U.S. government on the NATO desk back in the '80s, and uh, in the 80s the frustration was always with Greece. <laughs> ah. <laughs> but but in the end way, ways were found to make things work. So I, you know the NATO issue now, you know it's Turkey and Hungary uh, they need those votes to bring Sweden formally into the alliance. Um you know the the Turks have made some movement uh, and I think you know the you know president Biden actually 6 months ago you know very gently made the link, which is the Turks desperately want to modernize their air force mm-hmm. because the Turks chose to buy a Russian air defense system. They right. disqualified themselves from the new F-35. Right. So they wanted to buy a modernized F-16s and uh, president Biden, I thought in a masterful stroke, in the press conference, said, yes, we're really looking forward to Sweden being in NATO and also selling the Turks modern F-16s mm-hmm. and, 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 and actually the Turks, if they're smart, they would move now. Because with Senator Menendez sort of suspended from his leadership position, he might have blocked the right. you know, They now have somebody in the chair who is sympathetic to this. Church right. um, want to modernize their Air Force. They should move and they should take advantage of that time now. And my guess is that they will. And then Orban has said that Hungary would not be the last to vote or would not block it. So we'll see on that. Yeah. Um, I think the question is going to be, you know, can the, um, the commission figure out some ways to put some pressure. I mean, I think they've released some money for Hungary, but they were still withholding other money. Can they do some things with their powers, basically in a transactional way to get Orban uh, to, to, to drop his opposition? Or can they work out a way where EU members individually retain those funds and then transfer them to the Ukrainians or, or help the Ukrainians on a bilateral basis? So I, I think there's some workarounds if need be, um, but yeah, this does bring up the situation. You know, you kind of wish there was a provision in both uh, the uh, NATO treaty and the EU
0: <laughs> treaty for uh, booting somebody out. <laughs> oh, tell me about it. I, I mean, there there isn't, but God, I would I would love it if if there were. The other thing on both, like Orban in Europe and the MAGA Republicans in the U.S., is that I'm wondering how much of this is transactional how much are they ex- trying to extract their pound of flesh and that's it or how much of this is ideological um and you know that they are in principle opposed to aiding Ukraine because whatever they're Putin they're they're, they're Putin fanboys or whatever i i i don't i'm i'm not going to get inside their heads but how do you see that
1: yeah i i mean i i'm less smart about uh, orban but what does bother me when i watch certain elements of again what i refer to for lack of a better term is the maga wing of the Republican party is this admiration for Putin. And, yeah. and it's because Putin has adopted, and I think he's adopted this in a very political way. I don't know what Putin thinks personally, but it's political. He's adopted a fairly conservative set of uh, of social values. Yes. And that tends to align with a lot of the views of those who, again, I refer to as MAGA Republicans. And, and so there's almost, I think, in a group of the Republican Party, there is this admiration for Putin. Mm-hmm. You know, They want to be like him because of, you know these conservative values, and they totally ignore. You know that you know, just what I look at Russia today. You know Navalny, you know the number one political prisoner. Uh, apparently, the Russian uh, penal system has lost him. They don't know where he is, or so they're not telling him where he is. Mm-hmm. These things. Uh, you know, people, reporters getting jailed for five years for calling the special military operation the war. Uh, you, you, you see this young woman who. Uh, you know, made this
0: very small protest sentenced to what? You know, seven years in prison. Uh, Of course, there's my former colleague, also Kermersheyev, from Radio Free Europe, who is Putin's latest hostage. And and so, you know, it bothers me that, you know, this
1: admiration uh, for Putin because he he shares his social values, you know, he's anti-gay, he's anti-abortion, and they overlook the fact that, you know, Putin has taken... Russia back to the
0: worst of Soviet times. Right? Um, yeah, I mean, and this, I mean, this was calculated on the Kremlin's part. I did some reporting on this back in yeah. 2013. There was a white paper that came out of the Kremlin in 2013, basically, it, uh, suggesting that this would be a good path to take, that Putin should adopt these... Uh, so-called conservative positions on social issues to drive wedges in the in 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 the West and to align the far right in the West with him. This is this was calculated. This goes back to 2013, and there was a Kremlin white paper that 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 proposed this. Um, I didn't take it seriously at the time. I certainly do now. Yeah, and what has surprised
1: me and disappointed me is is how easily uh, you know, the far right or the MAGA wing of the Republican
0: Party has fallen into that trap. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because we've become so tribalized ourselves that everything becomes one of these tribal issues. You and I are old enough to remember when these national security issues were not politicized. Uh, The the Republican Party used to be the party at national security. Ronald Reagan would be appalled. I I tweeted out uh, a couple days ago Ronald Reagan must be spinning in his grave right now, as is John McCain. But yeah. that's, that's where we are. Steve, before we get into the second half, and I kind of wanted to look at the, the how you see the war playing out, you alluded to it earlier, there's one other thing I wanted to touch on. Yeah. And this is Lend-Lease, right? This passed last year. And I thought at the time Lend-Lease gives the president the unilateral authority to quote-unquote lend military hardware to Ukraine isn't this a may a perhaps a workaround? Are we going to be hearing a little bit more about lend-lease going forward, or is that am I am I interpreting it incorrectly? Yeah, uh, you know, yeah, I've heard the same
1: thing about lend-lease. There's also another provision, uh, excess defense articles, mm-hmm. uh, a provision by law that allows the United States to provide to allies either at cost or free. Uh, American weapon systems that have been declared excess. So you know, you go back to the nineteen sixties and early seventies, and if you were to look at the Greek and Turkish navies, you know, they are almost entirely outfitted with cast-off American destroyers. Right. Wait. wait. So I I, I think that now I, I did ask somebody once, and I hadn't have a chance to follow up on it. They said uh, excess defense articles that opens up some real cans of worms. It gets difficult, and there may be some similarities with lease. So obviously, yeah. the third course is for Congress to pass the administration request fund it that way but if that doesn't happen uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised then if people got a little bit more creative at the White House and the Pentagon to figure out some some plan B's I've always wondered for example that you know when we transfer you know weapons to Ukraine there's a certain price they pay you know we, de- we deduct that from the amount of money mm-hmm. uh, do we price those things the right way I mean, Right. Abrams tank that's sitting at the Sierra Army Depot up in the Sierra is in California. Uh, The army, I think, has far more Abrams tanks than they plan to use. Uh, Mm -hmm. What's the value of that tank? Uh, Right. As is, you know, you you could value it pretty low and say, well, you know, 30 years from now, it's going to be just a kind of a piece of metal. Right, right. Could you get creative on on some of the price things? And, And it may be that the Pentagon has done some of that. Remember, A little bit ago, they discovered they had three or four billion dollars more. But the other thing it seems to me that the West ought to be considering, and we ought to be considering in any case, is you know there's over three hundred billion dollars in Russian central bank assets frozen uh, in in financial institutions. You know, it is to my mind far past time for the West to move simply to seize that money and make that available. For Ukraine, both for its defensive purposes, but also for the reconstruction, which is going to be hugely expensive. And there's been a resistance to sending that money back. I know within the Treasury, they're worried that it will undercut. It'll somehow make it hard to hold dollars. Well, no, my argument would be if you're going to launch you know, a deal of previous war on your neighbor, yeah, it might be <laughs> not a good idea to hold dollars, right? But most countries are not going to be doing that. And so dollars are going to be perfectly safe. Um So so looking at something like that, because also it just seems to me that um, that money's not going back to Russia. I I mean, how, say the war ends tomorrow and we're engaged on rebuilding Ukraine, how do Western leaders justify going to the publics and saying, we're asking you to kick in 10, 15, $20 billion to rebuild Ukraine at the same time they're sending $300 billion back to Russia? I mean, right. that just makes no sense. And so somehow we've got to get some more, perhaps more clever uh, lawyers in the uh, the Treasury Department here and then some of the ministry of finance in Europe to figure out ways that they could safely move this money and make it available to Ukraine.
0: Yeah, no, in this discussion, I mean, this discussion is an ongoing one uh, here in Washington and elsewhere. And I, I have seen the consensus on this moving slowly but surely towards seizing those assets i mean it's got to be done you know of course with all your legal eyes dotted and t's crossed but it's uh, i think we're we're the consensus i see moving clearly in that direction even in treasury um so i i think i think we'll get to that place now that's probably money for reconstruction though it's not going to be turned into defense yeah. aid.
1: but but again again if we run into trouble raising money elsewhere that's something we got to be thinking about yeah and again, if you've got the United States and Europe doing that in parallel, um, again, you know, most countries who hold foreign currencies, it's either dollars or the or euros. Uh, you know, are countries in the global south going to say, "Oh, we don't trust all, we're going we're gonna to hold rubles instead"? Right. <laughs> Happen. Uh, so, I, I, I think that there, you know, we got to be a bit more creative on that score, uh, either f- for reconstruction or if we need the money, you know, more. In a more urgent basis to help the
0: Ukrainians uh, with their defense needs, and we got to look to there. Yeah, no, I, I would like to see. I haven't seen it go there. The, it's discussion up till now is all been about reconstruction aid and seizing those funds. But I think you're right, Steve. I think that is that would be a viable, and there if there is precedent um, in the with with Iraq and Kuwait. I mean, yeah. we we we've done this in the past. You when you were in government, and then in the in the in the in the eighties and early nineties. Iraqi assets were seized for the reconstruction of Kuwait, so there is precedent for
1: this. Yeah, yeah. And I think you see so some, some movement in Europe. I think yeah, Europeans now are basically saying, Okay, we can start taking the interest on those financial holdings and turn that over to Ukraine and it amounts to, you know, you know, maybe a billion dollars a month. You know, that that's gonna help. It's not what they need, but at least, you know, they're beginning to move in the right direction. <laughs>
0: yeah no I, I, I it's, it's this is an area I got, again, as this moves forward, if the dysfunction continues, we're all going to have to start thinking outside the box here in, in in how to get this done. That's a good way to segue. in a few moments we will continue our discussion and look at what Ukraine's options look like if the USA does indeed dry up. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University at Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center joining me from Palo Alto, California, is the one and only Steven Pfeiffer, who served as the United States Ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 to 2000, and is currently embedded at Stanford University Center for International Security and Cooperation. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn or wherever you get your podcasts. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on that platform that was once known as Twitter, at Power Vertical, and now you can follow us on Threads and Blue Sky, at Power Vertical, and please do. We're trying to build up our following on those platforms. Russia's war on Ukraine isn't just about is not just about some old-fashioned dictatorship trying to settle scores, real or imagined. It's not just Moscow trying to split Europe again. It's Putin, Putin attacking that big shift that happened back in 1989. So this is a question I didn't think I would ever need to contemplate, but at this point we seem to have no choice. What does this conflict look like If the aid dries up, how do you see uh, how do we see it developing and what are the end game scenarios? Steve, I wanted to address this question, but the broader thing you raised in the first half, it's a question, it's it's an issue we've been kind of dealing with in the podcast. The the issue of a a more realistic expectations, a, a viable theory of victory, a viable theory of success. But also, I think by necessity, we have to look at what that looks like in an era of diminished aid from the West. So how do, you, how do you see this playing out on the ground? Is it as hopeless as people are are, are seem to be painting it at the moment?
1: Yeah, well, again, I hope that um, people step back and think, look, what does the world look like if Russia prevails? Mm-hmm. Uh, not just I would see a greater Russian threat to other European countries, including NATO countries. What message do the Chinese draw? Mm-hmm. What yeah, yeah. the world looks bad now, the world could look a lot uglier if the West fails to support Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, I mean, theory of success. I, I tried to frame, and this is where, I guess, one of my critiques of the Biden administration, I, I think they've done a generally good job in supporting Ukraine. They've they, 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 they they've worked very hard. But I've, I, there are a couple of things I'd like to see them do better, one before I more weapons more quickly. Um but I'd also like, and maybe we saw the president do this on Tuesday, where he said, we want Ukraine to win. But the usual White House line is, we will support Ukraine as long as it takes. Right. That raises the question, as long as it takes to do what? Right. <laughs> and my own theory is that, you know, I, I think that the West's goal should be to support Ukraine so that the military can drive the Russians completely out of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, or achieve enough success on the battlefield where a negotiated settlement comes possible, that's on terms that are acceptable to the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people. Um, So, I mean, that's what I think we should be pushing for. It gets a lot harder to do that if Western aid begins to dry up. I think there are a couple of things that work to the Ukrainian's advantage. First, uh, by all appearances, I'm sure there's a lot of war weariness and war fatigue in Ukraine, but they still remain pretty determined. All the polls show that the Ukrainians are prepared to do what it takes to fight to regain their land, uh, that they're not, you know, only it's a relatively small minority that want to get into negotiations now, but uh, the idea of driving the Russians out and recovering all Ukrainian land still holds a lot of support with the Ukrainian people. And that's understandable. I mean, Ukrainians see this as an existential fight. If they lose, their democracy is gone. Their vision of becoming a normal European state is gone. You know, Ukraine's gone. So I think that's one thing in their advantage. They have motivation. They have will that you just don't see on the Russian side. I think Russian soldiers have no idea what they're Probably. fighting. The other thing is that, you know, you see now, I mean, if, if Western aid dries up, the Ukrainians likely will have to go on for the defensive. And I think what we've seen in 22 months of fighting, and unfortunately the Ukrainians found out about this in the last six months, is the defense has a lot of advantages. Yes. Uh, and, and the ability to to prepare fortifications, trench lines, minefields. Uh, so, I mean, that I think will be one thing that will also help the Ukrainians is that they will be fighting a defensive war. But, you know, you have to ask what's going to happen. I mean, they can have all the will in the world, uh, but if they begin to run out of artillery shells, air defense missiles, mm-hmm. um, things... At some point, that's going to have an impact, that lack of means is going to have an impact on the battlefield.
0: Yeah, this is something that concerns me. I mean, we've both been to wartime Kiev, and one thing I took away, Steve, I don't know if you, I mean, I um, I felt really safe in Kiev for for the very, even though there were air raids every night, and I spent every night in an air raid shelter, but I felt safe because I knew American Patriot missiles were protecting the the capital. What if that dries up? And we're in a situation where Kiev is actually experiencing, I mean, they are experiencing air raids every night, but not many of those missiles or drones are getting through. Yeah. Um, if that dries up, the, the whole, the, the, I mean, keeping your capital safe is like rule number one of war, right? And if that if that dries up, that, that worries me of how much this could change the trajectory of things.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really also across the country. I mean, the Russians seem to be reverting to something they did a year ago during the winter, is trying to attack really civilian infrastructure electric power uh the central heating in cities that you mm-hmm. know not really to make uh just increase the hardships that Ukrainians suffer you know in winter and, and thus far particularly in key they've been able to you know blunt the worst of that but that's dependent on a continuing supply of of uh, west trade right.
0: there's another thing you, you that you know, know, talk, that you said that I wanted to drill down on you said we should be we help Ukraine to either liberate all of its territory back to its 1991 borders, or put it in a strong enough position where it, where it can negotiate an acceptable uh, settlement with Russia. Where is that sweet spot? I mean, if we go from the from what 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 Russia has now is clearly unacceptable with that land bridge to Crimea. I mean, that just is like it's a security nightmare for Ukraine, and every yeah. military analyst says this. 91 borders, yeah, we all want that, but where's the sweet spot in between there? Yeah, yeah, is the uh, no. I I
1: think the the ideal spot for the Ukrainians, but I would also argue for the West is the 1991 border. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is a bad message for the world if Russian demonstrates they can seize territory using military force and they get away with it. Right, but also having said that, the reason I say I leave a little bit of room there, uh, an agreement acceptable to the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people. Because at the end of the day, you know, they may conclude that they cannot get back to the 1991 border. Uh, I mean, this is where I'm kind of a, of a mood. Uh, on. I think it's absolutely wrong. I very much disagree with some of my colleagues in the think tank world to say it's time to push the Ukrainians to negotiate. Oh, yeah. Uh, one, yeah. you know, there is no sign whatsoever that Moscow is prepared to negotiate on anything other than, than its maximalist demands the capitulation of Ukraine. we saw that when Vladimir Putin did his four-hour uh you know marathon we saw right. that uh, Maria zakharova, the, uh, the foreign ministry defense spokesperson spoke over the weekend and listed the demands. I mean yeah it's it's been interesting to me that Russian demands which were maximalist in February of 2022 for an end of the war and they've actually increased so in September right. of 2022, they demanded that Ukraine recognize Russia's supposed annexation of Zaporizhia, Kherson, Luhansk, and Donetsk, right. even though for two months the Russian army had been losing on the battlefield right. and occupy all of those areas. So there, there's no sign that the Russians are prepared to negotiate in a serious way. They're prepared to negotiate on Ukraine's surrender on Russian terms. Right. Um, so you've got to have that. The other part about the negotiation is, you know, if you get into a negotiation, you have to understand you're not going to get everything you want. You're going to have to compromise on some things. And it seems to me that this is a calculation that only really the Ukrainian government, President Zelensky can make, because some of the compromises that he might have to make in a a negotiation could be very hard to sell to the Ukrainian public. So I, mean, I I go back. I mean, if you look in March of 2022, uh, the Ukrainians and I, I think Zelensky at that time was personally pained each day that Ukrainians were getting killed. And in those negotiations, Ukraine was reportedly prepared to accept neutrality. I think there were indications Ukraine was prepared to make some territorial concessions to end the fighting. It changed at the end of March because yep. this happened: the the Ukrainians liberated Bucha, Irpin, Volodyanka. You know, they saw, what, 500 people in a mass grave in, in Bucha, the torture chambers. You know, they saw, you know, directly what Russian occupation meant. That hardened the attitude of the Ukrainian government, but it hardened the attitude of the Ukrainian people. So they, yeah. some of the ideas that were being talked about early on as a basis for a settlement you know, could not be sold to the Ukrainian public. And and that's why I think we shouldn't be pushing, because one, Russia has to be serious but also, you know, Zelensky and the Ukrainian, they have to make that decision what they can and cannot accept. So we shouldn't be pushing them. On the other hand, if the Ukrainians at some point conclude that they need to accept a settlement that is something less than full restoration of the 1991 borders, you know, the West also should basically say that's your decision. We will be supportive to the max on that.
0: Yeah, when I see the Ukrainians come around, they're 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 clearly not there. But I'm hearing more discussions about this than I did earlier in the war, and I'm sure you are too. Um I mean there's talk of like, all right, if you know, if we seize some of this territory, but we get NATO membership. Yeah. Right? Now that's not it's it's you can't really do a quid for a quote there because NATO membership is a long process. Uh, But nevertheless, I'm to the fact that I'm actually hearing people talk in those terms. Now, I won't talk in those terms because Ukraine's territory is not mine to negotiate away. Right. But but if if the Ukrainians are comfortable with that, I'm looking at it also from a security like the current the current front lines unacceptable. That is a security nightmare. for Ukraine. Our common friend Ben Hodge, General Ben Hodges, thinks any settlement that leaves Crimea, out of Ukraine is a security problem for Ukraine because that's where most of the, most, a, a lot of the, the attacks are coming from and a lot of a lot of the defense capacity is coming from. I'll take his word on that. He's a three-star general and I'm not, <laughs> but, uh, but I, it's like, I can't figure out what the formula looks like. Is it breaking up that land bridge? Where, where, where is in, obviously there's not, it's not a fair question. It's not a real answer to that, but I am trying to imagine what this, could look like in this in this scenario that all of us find deeply distasteful. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I, I mean I, I think it ideal there's uh, again I, I think what the Ukrainians need do is that they're going to be fighting mainly a defensive war for the first part of 2024. You know, but can they you know restore some offensive capability, regroup? Um and actually one of the good things is that uh you know although their counteroffensive didn't succeed and they, they expended a lot of artillery. They didn't lose a lot of the tanks and armor, a lot of the equipment they got. That's still intact. Uh, and and so they have time, I think, now to train people further and and maybe think of some ways to, you know, try to uh, have a more successful counteroffensive, maybe towards the end of 2024. Uh, yeah. But, but, but again, if it does get to a point, I think the Ukrainians, this should be a Ukrainian decision. Um. And I think yes, there began to ask that question: what ha- What is something less than restoration of the 1991
0: border? But I don't have a sense of the Ukrainians are yet, thinking exactly what that looks like. Yeah, no, I I don't think so either. Um, there's one other thing before we wrap it up. I'm watching the clock and mindful that you 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 got a hard stop. Um, something that's been bothering me is that since the counteroffensive did not achieve its objectives. There has been a lot of leaking from both sides about who is to blame for this. Um, I'm sure you read the accounts that were in in the Times and the Post about this, about about, about, uh, you know, the the kind of all the postmortems and you got leaks on both sides. Um, The Americans are to blame because we didn't provide weapons fast enough. The Ukrainians are to blame because they they they. Spent a lot of resources in Bakhmut. Didn't listen to the American advice to go down one trajectory rather than three. Um, what do you make of all of this? I, 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 I don't. I don't like us airing our dirty laundry in public. As a former diplomat, I'm sure you hate seeing this. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I'd like to know the information, but I'd rather get it in a private briefing than on the front page of the New York Times.
1: Right. No, I, I completely agree with that. No, I, I think what you see it's a little bit of frustration on both sides. You know. Uh, it, it, and you, you have a situation, and probably, you know, we in the West overestimated the Ukrainian chances for the counteroffensive.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm a little bit, uh, I, I know that there are people in Washington who think that the Ukrainians should have fought it a different way. Uh, and, you well, know, I don't know whether they're right or wrong. But right. Again, but again, it was going to be Ukrainian lies here at stake. This had to be a Ukrainian decision. Um, I, I also, I mean, I think, I think what we've learned and we, we probably underestimated and, uh, is that the Russians spent a lot of time at the end of last year when they realized that they could no longer conduct effective offensive operations in 22 digging in defenses. I mean, I think if you look over the course of this 22 months of fighting now, and we're now in, I guess, almost in the month 23, um, you know, the Russians, you know, Putin had a number of people in command of the Russian military operation in Ukraine. Uh, it seems to me that by far the most effective uh, was General Srovikin. Right. The last three or four months of 2022, he recognized that the offensive was not going to be sustainable. He pulled off something that I think, you know, militarily was, I mean, I, I, I wish it failed, but, you know, the evacuation of Russian military forces from the western side of uh, the Dnieper River at Hersong. Right. Right. Uh, and then he built these defensive lines, which really are, you know, pretty solid and have given the Ukrainians so much trouble. Now the good news is that uh, Putin apparently was frustrated with the defensive war, so he fired Suravikin, and then of course Suravikin got too close to Prigozhin, is now been right. captured, uh, and so you now have Gerasimov in charge, and you know that's a uh, that's a blessing for the Ukrainians because I don't think Gerasimov is the most effective
0: leader. But we, uh, yeah, Gerasimov is not the genius we all used to think he is, huh?
1: Exactly. Yeah, and, and as long as the Russians, uh, you know, s- somebody who had said, uh, say, said that there was a report, I guess, early on that the Russians or the Ukrainians actually tried to target to take Grasimov out, and he speculated that maybe the Ukrainians say, "No, we don't want to take Grasimov I- <laughs> because he's actually running a fairly bad war from the uh, the Russian side." But again, we underestimated just how much s- sort of can had done in the defensive lines. Ukraine is probably, if not the most, one of the most heavily mined countries in the world now. Yeah, But again, that shows the advantages of the defense. And, you know, the Ukrainians now can turn that to their uh, favor by, you know, if they're going to be preparing on the defensive. And what we've seen is, uh, again, over the last 18 months, you know, the Russians uh, in offensive operations, you know, resort to these kind of these human wave attacks and things like that, where Either they're not successful or if they do achieve some marginal gains, they do it at huge cost. And I, I, again, I have to wonder at some point, I, 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 I would have thought it came, would have come, might have come earlier, but at some point, does just the sheer impact of this steady flow of Russian soldiers coming home in body bags, does that begin to erode the determination of the Russian elite or the Russian public to continue this war?
0: Well, I mean, I think that they have been very cynically, uh, but very effectively kind of uh, creating kind of a bulwark against that. Most of those on the front lines are not coming from the capitals, from they're not coming from Moscow and St. Petersburg. They're coming from ethnic republics. They're coming. So so it's I mean the way i imagine they think of it is these are expendable people that aren't going to have a political cost for us then you have the the recruitment of convict uh convicts so i mean now that supply is not endless i <laughs> that's, that's, that's eventually it's going to it's going to hit you know the 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 rich families of 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 of, of moscow and st petersburg but we have not we've not gotten to that point yet uh, as well but also the economy has proven much more resilient than anybody expected. I was having dinner with the the emigre Russian journalist Mikhail Zigar a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me that in Moscow it, there is so much money sloshing around, you can't get a seat at a restaurant, uh, you can't get a reservation because you know because there's there's a lot of money sloshing around. A lot of it because a lot of money was repatriated due to sanctions. Yeah, um, but that's also that's not a bottomless well. Either, and I'm wondering how long the, the 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 Russians can continue to be to be resilient in this in this yeah, situation. Yeah, or... no,
1: I, I agree. I mean, uh, I had um, you know much higher expectations for the sanctions. Now, also, I think we need to remember is the Russians have been very clever about creating loopholes. Yes, they have, uh, and we need to close some of those loopholes off. I mean, uh, I think I saw what Kazakhstan uh, in 2023 imported what seven or eight times as many semiconductors and chips yeah. at the you know and we have to find a way to basically i think tell countries if you do that you know we will cut off the supply to you
0: as well we right been- yeah no, it's kazakhstan armenia georgia and turkey are the four yeah. countries that i've heard are the enablers here and i think it's time to crack down on them so we got to, we have to crack
1: down on that uh, yeah moscow i mean i think for the last 10 years there's always been a lot of money sloshing around in moscow but my guess is outside of moscow and st petersburg it's getting a little bit more difficult yeah. And the one thing I think uh, Putin said he expected the economy was going to go this year 3 to 3.5%. But I think a lot of that is it's generated by the increase in defense spending. So Russian defense spending, which was, was about 3% of gross domestic product two years ago, is now, I think, up to 6 to 7%. So they're spending a lot of money. It's going into defense. It's probably not having much of an impact on what the civilians see. But I think there really are some questions. Can they sustain that?
0: Yeah, and I know this is one. Go ahead. They don't have the advantage of the United States. We can just print money. Um, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, the advantage of having the world's reserve currency. But yeah, you. this is this is another one of the things I'm watching going forward. Steve, I'm watching the clock mindfully, your time. Any last uh, thoughts before we wrap it up for this week? No,
1: I, I just, I think at the end of the day, I, I, I hope Congress will do the right thing. And this is where I think, um, again, uh, President Biden needs to speak a bit more on this. Uh, he gave, I thought, a great speech that was very clear in Warsaw in February uh, after he came out of Kiev. Uh, he needs to do that a little bit more, but he also needs to have to find some key Republicans. I mean, John McCain would have been the person doing it. Oh, yeah. With us. But, you know, some Republicans, uh, McConnell, some of the more sensible Republicans, they need to be as Republicans making the case to their fellow senators and their fellow members of Congress. This is why it matters, that, that, that this is not just giving money to Ukraine, this is an investment in American and Western security. And if Russia prevails, if Ukraine loses, the security situation that the United States is going to face one or two years down the road is going to be much more difficult than today.
0: Yeah, and I make my last conversation here in D.C. with some with some Hill staffers gave me some cause for optimism. They, they they seem to think there is a path to yes. There is a formula where something on the border will give these MAGA Republicans some cover so they can vote for this without losing uh, the left, which would be the next problem if we give too much on the border. But it's a, it's a tough needle thread. But I I walked away from my latest set of meetings with with, with Hill staffers saying that 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 there is a path to yes. I I hope. That is true., uh, you see you see more up. You've talked me off the ledge successfully. thank you. <laughs> but, uh,
1: I, I think I think there's that past the yes. I mean,, uh, and I think we'll get to yes. Um, uh, but uh, it, it'll take more time perhaps, and it'll have some more twists and turns than you and I would like. I would really be much happier if, you know, the Senate did the deal on the border in Ukraine over the weekend or early next week. The House came back, and everybody went home and enjoyed a nice Christmas with the U.S. government having approved $60 billion, or having $60 billion approved by Congress to fund support for Ukraine, which will carry us through most of 2024.
0: From, from from your lips to God's ears, Mr. Ambassador, that's all we have today. I, I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Palo Alto, California, has been the one and only Stephen Pfeiffer, who serves as U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 1990 to 2000 and is currently embedded at the Stanford University Center for International Security and Cooperation. Steve, thanks for an enlightening discussion and for making me and our listeners a whole lot smarter. Thanks very much, Brian. You enjoy your holiday. You too. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled in order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical, and you can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. The Power Vertical podcast will break for the winter holidays, but we will see you all in 2024 and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team